Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 403. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Don't forget, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. 20 years in IT industry, helping you with your little problems. Problems to them, but not to, to ourselves. Sometimes computers just drive you mad. And it's nice to know that kind of someone like Octagon Technology is there if you need the help. Big thank you to Clive and Diane. I tell you what's coming in today's show. We have two stories, a main fiction and short fiction. First up is the main fiction, yes, Redemption Awaits by Mike Brooks. Then we have Fragmented by Andrew Liptak. That is all coming in the day show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now, some out there might realise that <laughs> not firing on all cylinders. A little bit, little bit, little bit of the old man flu. Yeah, I'm I'm struggling, as you know, struggling with this man flu cold day. Oh, yeah, struggling. Being the captain, you know what I mean? You've got to set an example and you've just, you know, you've got to kind of just work through it and crash through it there and just get on with a job that's people relying on you. You know, I'm the, the, the book stops here kind of thing. I can't be off sick or anything like that, you know what I mean? So, just a minute. Love, are you still doing that chicken soup for us? Uh, how about me slippers? If I, will you warm them up a little bit? Just too cold to put on, man. I don't want that dressing gown. It chaffs me. Get me a nice dressing gown, man. Aye, please. Uh, that's better. Thank you. Like I said, you know what I mean. You gotta, you gotta just carry on and crack on. You know what I mean. Don't give no nonsense. Flu. What me? So, like I say, we'll crack on with the very first story in the main fiction, Redemption Awaits by Mike Brooks, originally published in Grimdark Magazine, issue four. Mike Brooks was born in Ipswich, Suffolk, and moved to Nottingham when he was 18 to go to university. He stayed there ever since. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with it, man. How are you, man? Nottingham, eh? Backbone of England, man. He is the author of the Kiko novels. I'm sure I've butched that up there, Mike. Sci-fi adventures that follow the escapades of those crewing for the spaceship of the same name. Dark Run was released on June the 4th, 2015, and Dark Sky is set to follow on the November the 5th. 
When not writing, he works for a homeless charity playing guitar and sings in a punk band, watches football, soccer, to use uh, out there. MMA and nature science documentaries goes walking in the Peak District or other areas of splendid scenery and DJs wherever everyone will tolerate him. Like you do the lot, you know what I mean? You do the, you've covered the whole lot there, lad. This story is narrated by Jonathan Sharp. Jonathan's done a few stories for like narrations, and it's just lovely. It's just lovely. It's just a voice that kind of just wraps you in this story. He was born in southern New Mexico in the nexus between Area 51, Trinity Site, and Spaceport America. He currently he attended culinary school in Portland, Oregon, and has managed a number of restaurants, cafes, and bakeries. By day... He is the produce manager of a natural grocery store and by night practicing narrations and voice acting while dreaming of a future filled with world travel via sailboats alongside his lovely wife, Paige. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Redemption Waits by Mike Brooks Read by Jonathan Sharp What the shit is that? It was a fair enough question, Ichabod Drift reflected. The galaxy was full of wondrous things, and some of them really were quite odd-looking. Such was the case with the edifice hoving into view through the viewshield of the Keiko, the somewhat battered Kenya-class freighter of which he was captain and proprietor. What does it look like? he asked. Amir McGillicuddy screwed up his face as though considering the question caused him physical pain. Looks a bit like some bastard built a flying church. Some bastard did, Drift confirmed. But in space, bad things can happen to good people. Or bad people. Just to people in general, I guess. Basically, it's not a church anymore. Tamara Rourke said. Short where Drift was tall, curt where he was loquacious, and with her black hair cropped close to the skull, while his hung in violet dyed lengths to his shoulders. Drift's business partner didn't like anyone wasting words. She looked up from the terminal screen she was studying on the other side of the cockpit. We've got clearance for Bay 23, Gia. Gotcha, their pilot acknowledged, adjusting the thruster settings. So if it's not a church now, what is it? Amir persisted. He was younger than anyone else on the crew except Gia, and despite Amir's collection of useful skills, Drift was already starting to find him slightly wearing. Best to let them explain, Drift said, tapping a flashing icon. The hollow desk sputtered to life, and two white male figures appeared on the dash, about one-eighth of real size, in the pre-recorded welcome message which had been hailing them. One was tall and stocky with long dark hair tied back, a beard extending an inch beyond his face, and antiquated clothes that wouldn't have looked out of place on old earth, including a ridiculous tall hat with a brim. The other was shorter, slighter, and clad in a bodysuit of some modern poly-u fabric. With one side of his head shaved, the hair on the other side left combed over, and a mechanical eye not dissimilar to the one that occupied Drift's right socket. Greetings and welcome to the House of the Redeemer, they chorused in unison. I am Captain John, the taller one continued, and I am Captain Jack, the smaller companion added. At a mighty three miles long, this is the largest pleasure house in the galaxy. And since it's conveniently positioned in international space, it's not subject to any laws except our own, and we have just one law. Have fun. Remember, Captain Jack concluded, giving a thumbs up, you can't be redeemed unless you've sinned. The transmission winked out, leaving Amir frowning at the holodesk. Is this for real? You bet your life, Drift told him. Which you can, in there. Though I wouldn't recommend it. He activated his comm. 
Hey, you ready to roll? Yes, bro. I'll be right up. Roger that. Drift stood, shifting his shoulders in an attempt to loosen them a little. While the crenellated majesty of the former house of worship passed lazily beneath the Keiko, he looked at Amir again. You know what your job is? Yeah, yeah, Amir muttered. I walk in with you, keep an eye out for anyone sneaking up or scoping us out while you're talking to the mark. Don't take it lightly, Rourke said. A void station like this is effectively lawless. If you want to walk out, you'll keep your wits about you. Feel free not to walk out, Gia added from the pilot's chair, without looking around. Drift frowned at Amir in silent warning not to rise to the bait. Gia normally only verbally sparred with her brother Kwai, their mechanic, but she and Amir had apparently gotten off on the wrong foot. If it came down to it, Drift knew which one he'd be booting. Amir was useful, but Gia was gifted. Egotistical and almost completely uncontrollable, perhaps, but certainly gifted. He hustled the kid out of the cockpit and into the boarding hall with no further exchanges of venom. Gia expertly brought them alongside one of the long docking tubes, and Drift used the slight delay to give final instructions to his crew. The contact's supposed to be on the third gambling floor, standing at roulette table number five, he reminded them, checking his hip holsters. We won't have long to get this done before that Brazilian cavron turns up for what he thinks is his job, so we'll have to move fast and slick. I make the approach, Amir watches our back. Big A lurks and makes an entrance if needed. A Piranha Wahanwa, the crew's enormous Maori bruiser, nodded his heavily tattooed head. You got it, bro. Tamara is back up in case something unexpected happens, Drift finished. If it all goes south, disperse and meet back here, clear? There were assorted nods and mutters of assent. Very well then, Drift beamed, popping the airlock behind him open to the pressurized tunnel beyond. Let's do something illegal. The docking tunnels always led to areas of the house that catered to fairly tame pursuits. So as not to scare away first-time punters, Drift and Amir walked through the brightly lit malls and past eateries, bars dispensing alcohol and soft narcotics, and flashing lights advertising rooms of coin-operated gambling machines. Soon enough, they reached a bank of elevators, the doors of which hissed softly as human traffic passed in and out. What does that mean? Amir asked, gesturing to a large sign on the wall. An arrow pointed upward with the word chance next to it in a variety of languages. Below it, an arrow pointed downward next to variations on the word certainty. Directions, Drift told him, heading for one of the cars which had just arrived. Upwards is gambling, downwards is, well, see for yourself. The door slid aside and a small group of people staggered out. They were in various stages of undress, and the one in the lead, a pale-skinned, thickly-bearded man with a turban, was bleeding from several neat lines on his bare torso. Oh, Amir said weakly. Pleasures for the body and mind, Riff said, slipping into an empty car with Amir on his heels. Word of advice, though, don't go too far down. Some people don't come out again. You don't say, Amir replied, eyes still fixed on the unsteady travelers until the doors closed and obscured them from view. And if you go right to the top, you can end up betting on what happens right at the bottom, Drift added, shunting an unpleasant memory aside. He'd never gone back to that particular contact a second time, and not because they'd paid badly. He wasn't too proud to admit that some things turned his stomach. They've got cameras. We're only going a little way up, though. Good, honest games of chance. The third gaming floor had a more subdued lighting scheme than the malls they'd passed through below, and a color scheme of rich burgundy, 
including velveted walls, which had always struck drift as an odd choice of decor. He led Amir in a casual wander between the tables, trying to look as though he was searching for his game of choice. In fact, he was scanning the roulette tables looking for the mark. There. Blonde. Tresses done up in an intricate style and held in place with a pair of black hair sticks. Drift closed his natural left eye for a second as not to get the unpleasant blurring sensation that reminded him of the wrong end of being drunk, and kicked up the zoom on his right. The girl expanded in his vision, late twenties perhaps, barring surgical or chemical age treatments, in a tight black dress and bicep-length matching gloves, just as their informant had said. You got her? Amir muttered from beside him. See, Drift pulled the zoom back on his natural eye level and began walking again, lifting a glass from a robotic dumbwaiter's tray as he did so. Any eyes on us? None I can see. Keep watching. You see, eh? Hard not to spot him, Amir snorted. He's circling around our right, about thirty yards away. Isn't he kind of suspicious? Sure, Drift admitted. But that only matters if anyone who happens to be watching us thinks he's with us. Which they shouldn't, given we entered separately. They approached the roulette table. Now Drift was closer, he could tell she wasn't there for gambling. She wasn't paying close attention to the table or the wheel, or even chatting with the other players. Instead, she was sipping her drink in the two small doses of someone who wanted to fit in, but didn't want to get drunk, and was trying to look all ways at once. She saw them approach, of course, but didn't look twice until they were on top of her. Drift was almost hurt. He felt he normally warranted a second look. Hola, senorita, he greeted her amiably in Portuguese. Amanda, I believe? Her dress wasn't actually black, as he had thought from a distance. Instead, it had a faint, rainbow-touched sheen to it, which was probably supposed to be captivating, but actually reminded him more of an oil spill. She wore no jewelry except a pair of square, over-large, silver-tipped sapphire studs in her ears. All in all, she didn't look as much like the image of a sophisticated, high-class gambler as she probably hoped. Unsurprising, given that so far as he was aware, she worked in a weapons lab. She turned completely away from the table to face him. Appearance aside, her blank expression could have done a professional poker player proud. Do I know you, sir? Her accent was precise cut-glass British, and another act, so far as Drift could tell. Just looking to conduct a little business, ma'am. Her eyes narrowed and she began to turn away from him. You're on the wrong floor. The prostitutes are further down. Damn. He caught her arm, but she squirmed free and backed off a couple of feet, glaring daggers at him. One or two other players glanced up at them, but only for a second. Other people's squabbles weren't any of their concerns. You're drawing attention to us, Drift murmured, trying not to look around. That was Amir's job. He just needed to stay focused. My name is Ricardo Montan- No, it's not, she replied, her eyes furious. I've seen a picture, and you're not who I'm supposed to meet. Double damn. My money's just as good, he said, saying a winning smile, but he hadn't counted on her nerves. This wasn't an experienced go-between. This was a nervous lab tech out of her depth and too scared to see the advantages of compromise. I'm not alone, he snorted. Bullshit. Her eyes widened slightly, and he knew he'd guessed correctly. He took a step closer, trying to exude an air of confidentiality and common purpose instead of intimidation, despite his height. You can't risk anyone else knowing about this deal, so you have no backup. Please, this will work a lot better for both of us if you- Keep away, she snapped. You'd better know I can handle a man twice my size if I need to. Drift sighed. Sometimes you just had to play hardball. It's not your lucky day then, because I brought one three times your size. 
Get aura. Apriana rumbled from behind her. At closer to seven feet than six and well over three hundred pounds, the sheer sight of Big A had diffused many a potential fight before it started. He'd wandered closer as the conversation progressed, and bless him, he ended up exactly where he'd needed to be right on cue. Almost certainly not Amanda actually squeaked an alarm at the sudden appearance of the Wall of Maori, but then did the one thing Drift simply hadn't counted on. She bolted directly away, swerving between the gaming tables and making for the nearest exit. Shit. Drift recovered himself in an instant and scrambled after her, ignoring the cries of protest from those around him. She really was painfully amateur at this, he thought, as he nearly clattered into a tray of drinks held by another robot. The first rule of dealing contraband, whatever it might be, was to avoid attention. Even in a place like the House of the Redeemer, where the law held no sway, you'd still want to keep your activities on the down low, lest someone else decide you had something valuable and muscled in. Which was exactly what he was trying to do, he supposed. But at least he had a bit of class. He'd been perfectly willing to pay for the goods, if she'd had the sense to negotiate. Amanda was fast, he'd give her that. She made it to the exit before he could make much ground on her, then darted left out of sight down the corridor. It took him a couple more breathless seconds to reach the doorway, just in time to see her back disappearing around another corner. The calm crackled in his ear. Jesus, Ichabod, what did you do? I overestimated her, Rourke said curtly without slowing down. You overestimated her? I thought she was smarter, he replied. Got any suggestions? Stay on her. I'll cut her off at the elevators. We'll get her one way or the other. He rounded the next corner and was startled to find Amir pulling level with him. He'd never expected Aparana to join the case. The big man could build up reasonable head of steam in a straight line, but wasn't what you'd call nimble. But he hadn't expected the kid to think quickly enough to keep up with him. Just shoot her, Amir shouted as they pounded through startled punters and staff, leaving a trail of spilled drinks, scattered hors d'oeuvres, and a sulfurous swearing in their wake. No! Drift was a little surprised at the vehemence of his own objection, but damn if he'd resort to murder and theft. That was just uncivilized. Besides, despite the captain's welcoming speech, the house had its own enforcers to make sure all fun stayed where it was meant to. If you started causing trouble outside of the lower levels, well, then you might run into the likes of the two men in gold-rimmed, navy-blue uniforms around the next corner, who were turning in the direction of Drift and Amir at the frantic urging of Amanda. Drift caught a brief glimpse of the triumphant smile spreading over his quarry's face before his attention was caught by a pair of gun muzzles being raised with bad intentions. Drift dived instinctively, using his momentum to throw himself into a roll across the plush carpet. A crack of gunfire assaulted his ears, and he came up by the far wall with a pistol in each hand. His first left-handed shot went wide, but the second one caught one of the guards in the shoulder, while his first right-handed shot lucked out and hit a knee. The right-hand enforcer screamed and fell, his gun dropping as both hands clutched instinctively at the shattered joint. The one on the left staggered and swung his weapon in Drift's direction, but Drift's next shot stitched a line across the man's chest and put him down. His response had been automatic, and it was only once he'd fired that he realized how unusual it was for the house security to shoot first and ask questions later. However, when he looked around to check on a mirror, an explanation presented itself. The kid's gun was in his hand and the kid himself was on the floor. The young idiot must have already had his weapon out, and that would have been all the reason security needed to drop him. Damn it! Drift scrambled to Amir's side, but there were two holes in the kid's chest, leaking dark stains over his flight suit. That was it. 
The Keiko didn't have the sort of equipment or personnel to save someone from even one bad chest wound, let alone two. It was a shame, but Drift hadn't made a living off the galaxy for as long as he had for being overly sentimental. If the kid had only been winged, he'd have dropped the pursuit and trusted Rourke to get the deal done. But Amir had just transitioned himself from asset to dead weight, and the Keiko had no room for dead weight. A clatter of swing doors snatched his attention back to Amanda, who dived through them once her improvised ambush hadn't turned out as she'd planned. Even worse, Drift could hear her shouts and running feet indicating that additional security had been nearby and had heard the noise. The entire thing had only taken seconds, and there were still other people standing around the corridor in shock. Drift's eyes latched onto one, a middle-aged man with a ferocious beard and mustache and a bandana, which probably hit a bald spot, but also gave him a vaguely piratical air. Catch! Drift threw his left pistol underhand to the man, who caught it reflexively. Horrified realization was just beginning to creep over the poor bastard's face as Drift crashed through the double doors in pursuit of Amanda, which was when three more enforcers rounded the corner with guns drawn. It wasn't exactly Drift's fault if they jumped to inaccurate conclusions. Wait! The man's protestations were cut short by gunfire as the doors of what turned out to be a kitchen banged shut behind Drift. Other witnesses might clue the security into what had actually happened, but for at least a precious few seconds, the guards would think they'd killed their colleague's murderer. He needed to use those seconds wisely. There was another set of doors on the far side, and judging by the startled body language of the chef and waiter, who were just turning away from them and towards him, it was pretty obvious which way Amanda had gone. Both staff shrank back from him as he sprinted forward, pistol still in hand, and it occurred to him as he burst out into yet another corridor that he'd probably better holster his remaining weapon again before he ended up going out the same way as Amir. A little help? Rourke's voice rasped from his left. Amanda was facing him, a kitchen knife at her feet and her hands desperately clawing at the arm wrapped tight around her neck from behind. The arm itself was attached to Tamara Rourke, who was glaring at him over the woman's shoulder. Anytime you're ready, Rourke added, a trifle breathlessly. Rourke was deadly, but Amanda was struggling desperately against her grip. However, all Drift had to do was haul her hands away from Rourke's forearm and allow his business partner to sink the blood choke in properly. The struggling lab tech slumped to the floor a couple of seconds later, her brain briefly deprived of oxygen. Which hand was she holding her drink in? Rourke asked without preamble, releasing the hold. Uh, the right, Drift replied. He'd learned not to query Rourke's choice of questions when time was a factor, because there was always a good reason to them. Rourke bent down and grabbed Amanda's right ear stud, then simply wrenched it loose. Drift winced. It was going to sting like hell when she came around in a few seconds. Let's go, Rourke told him, her long coat flaring behind as she hurried past him. You, what makes you think that's it? Drift demanded, catching up with his partner in a few long strides. She left her bag when she ran from you, Rourke replied, not looking at him as they tried to put some distance between themselves and Amanda's temporarily unconscious form without appearing too suspicious. So it has to be on her person somewhere. Subdermal transport doesn't lend itself well to an inconspicuous handoff, and hidden pocket in that sort of clothing wouldn't be much better. No other jewelry, so the ear stud seemed anomalous and overlarge unless being used to conceal something. A right-handed person would instinctively put more valuable of the two otherwise identical studs in her right ear, as it would feel more secure there. Her dark-skinned hands twisted together around the ear stud, and there was a faint click before she slid the stone aside to reveal a small black square of plastic laced with metallic lines. Presto, one payload. 
You're going to be wrong one of these days, Drift told her through a smile. And then you'll get to say I told you so. I doubt I'll want to. He chewed the inside of his cheek for a moment while Rourke discarded the stud's separate halves and slotted the data chip into her pad. Amir didn't make it. Rourke's mouth twitched, but her stride didn't falter. That's a shame. He was useful. What happened? The girls said security on us, Drift replied. They got him. I had to, uh, take steps. Rourke's eyes flickered to him for a second, then back to the pad in her hands. Wonderful. Stairs, then? They can't lock those down, Drift agreed. How's it looking? Dangerous, Rourke said, the blueprint scrawling across her pad's display. Good, Drift nodded. That means someone will want to buy it. He keyed his comm. Hey, you there? Right behind you, Cap. Drift looked over his shoulder. Sure enough, Apriana was visible a little way back in the corridor, moving through the house's other punters like a freighter through a fleet of tugs. The big man had clearly remembered Drift's instruction to return to the ship if anything went awry. Good, Drift said, looking away again. Pick up the pace a little, though. I know we're an odd-looking bunch, but I'd rather stick together at the moment. We're taking the stairs. You got it. Apriana caught up with them just as they turned into a wide staircase which was a little too deserted for Drift's liking. The house of the Redeemer was huge and therefore hard to police. But the captains took an understandably dim view of people killing their staff, and Drift would have preferred a little more cover. Where's Amir? Apriana asked as they began to descend. Took a couple bullets from security, Drift muttered, trying to pitch his voice loud enough for the big man to hear him, but without anyone else picking up what he was saying. Seriously? Damn, bro. Apriana's big face soured. I kinda liked him. Nothing you could do? Two in the chest. Drift shook his head. All over the bar shouting. Shit. Namari sighed. Tell me you at least got what we came for. See, thanks to Sherlock here. Drift said, gesturing to Rourke. She looked at him blankly. Who? What, you don't? Drift looked at Apriana, who seemed equally mystified. Madre de Dios, does no one appreciate the classics anymore? They were fifty yards away from the hatch of the docking tunnel the Keiko was attached to when the press of people around them suddenly sprouted guns. Whoa, what? The instinctive progress of Drift's right hand toward his remaining pistol was halted by the intimidating, cold presence of a barrel against his temple. Jesucristo, man. No such luck, you Mexican babaca, a voice snarled. Its owner appeared in Drift's eyeline, tall and weathered, with a thick, dark mustache and generous stubble. Montino... Drift sighed and started sinking. Is there a problem here? You tell me, Ricardo Montanal spat. Actually, wait. How about you don't speak? You think I didn't see that piece of trash you call a ship lurking around Jormungandr? Drift frowned. I had business with Church and Camden, just like you. Which happened to bring you here? I don't think so. Somehow you got wind of the job I took for them and thought you could sneak in here and take it first. The Brazilian snorted a laugh. I admire your balls, but not enough to let you get away with it. Hand it over. I don't know. I'll happily redecorate this hallway with your brains, Mountaineau said. You're capable, Drift. I'll give you that. And I don't reckon you'd be heading back to your floating rust bucket unless you'd gotten what you came for. You can hand the chip over to me right now and you can walk away. Or we kill you and search your corpses. One way is easier for both of us. Sadly, Montano wasn't an idiot. Drift sighed. Tamara? There aren't that many of them, Rourke replied, gesturing at the half-dozen thugs that made up Montano's crew. She was standing totally relaxed, with no evidence of the tension Drift was feeling other than the diamond-hard glare she was shooting at Montano. 
Yeah, but me and A aren't tough as you, Drift pointed out truthfully. Just give it to him. Damn it, Drift. Rourke pulled the chip from her coat pocket and tossed it to the floor at Montano's feet. Don't stop covering her, the Brazilian ordered, squatting to retrieve it while keeping his eyes fixed on Rourke. He handed it to the woman beside him, a dark-haired tough with a face like a knife blade. That was too easy. Check it. His crewer slotted the chip into her pad and frowned. Looks like ponies? Montano's face creased in disbelief, and he craned his neck to see over her shoulder. What? Seriously, it's episodes of some sort of animated pony show. The shit is this? A decoy, Montano snapped, turning his attention back to Rourke. Nice try. The real chip, now, and your pad. Rourke glowered at him, but tossed him her pad. Montano pulled the chip out, dropped the pad, and stamped on it until it broke, then passed the new chip to his crewer. She placed it in her pad and nodded in approval. This looks like what we're after. Wonderful. Montano clicked his fingers, and the gun barrels leveled a drift Rourke and Apriana lowered. One last thing, Drift. How did you find out about this job? And don't try and tell me Church and Camden sent you here as well. The twins aren't dumb enough to set us both after the same thing. Drift shrugged, not bothering to hide the hollow feeling in his stomach. They lost Amir for nothing. Where's that redhead navigator of yours? Back on Jakar? Montano's eyes narrowed. I mean, I don't like to brag, but if you'd taken off as soon as you'd been given the job, then even I wouldn't have had time to loosen her tongue, he managed to smirk, as it were. Bullshit. Seriously, I mean, why would a navigator get a tattoo on her ass? She sits in a chair. That's her job. It's gotta hurt. Oh, fuck me, the woman to Drift's left side said, shaking her head. He's telling the truth, boss. Montano's mustache quivered as his mouth moved beneath it. But finally, he forced a smile. Well, thanks for the heads up, I guess. And for doing my work for me. But if I find you sniffing around one of my scores again, I won't be so friendly. He turned and walked away, presumably towards where the Jakar was berthed. His goons followed, but they kept their guns drawn and their eyes on Drift and his companions until they rounded the next corner. Damn, Apriana said, slamming his one giant fist into the other palm. A good call on the navigator story, Rourke said to Drift. A better idea than admitting we'd bug the twins' office, and you've got the rep to make it believable. Nice try on the bait and switch yourself, Drift replied. He'd attempted a smile. Kawhi's gonna be mad you lost his ponies, though. Shame they didn't buy it, Apriana muttered. Don't be so sure, Rourke said, the faintest hint of a smug smile cracking her lips. She pulled another data chip from her pocket. I switched the chip in my pad while they were looking at the first one. Drift stared at her, hardly daring to hope. But they checked it. They didn't know exactly what they were after, Rourke said. They got weapons plans all right, but it was a copy of the ones we stole from the new Giethi a few months back. The same ones we sold to Church and Camden last time, Drift laughed. Oh, Montano is going to try and sell the twins something they've already bought? Apriana grinned. I take it we ain't gonna go back to Jormungandr for a bit then. That wouldn't seem wise, Drift admitted, leading the way back towards the docking hatch. Suddenly everything had fallen back into place. Besides, the twins were only gonna be middlemen taking a cut. They've got no use for weapon blueprints themselves. When we first planned this, I was thinking about trying to find a buyer at the Great Souk, but Tamara had a better idea. I've got some contacts in the less reputable parts of the USNA government. Rourke said as the airlock hissed open. 
They'll be very interested in what we've got here and where it came from. And when I say interested, I mean willing to pay well. Hear that, big man? Drift said, slapping Apriana on the back as the Maori ducked his head to pass through the doorway. A government. We're practically doing good. Apriana turned to him. You see this face, bro? Yeah. This is my I don't believe your face. Oh, come on, Drift said, securing the airlock behind him. Someone's going to make money off of this. It might as well be us. He sighed happily. Cry havoc and let slip the... Rourke and Apriana looked blankly at him again. Oh, never mind. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Mike's. Mike, thank you so much for that, lad. Very nice, very nice indeed. Excellent. And good luck with your, your novels. Dark Run, like I say, is out now, June the 4th, 2015, and then get yourself Dark Sky when that comes out on November the 5th. Way to go, Mike. I'll put some links on to Mike so you can kind of go over there and have a look. And Jonathan, what can I say? Do you mean just a big hug, lad? Big hug. Thank you so much. Means a lot. You know what I mean? You keep coming and helping out on the show with narrations. Just thank you so much. So the next story is Fragmented by Andrew Liptak, which was originally published in Galaxy Edge magazine. Give you a little heads up about Andrew. Andrew Liptak is a freelance writer and historian from Vermont. We actually stayed in Vermont a few years ago, 10 or 12 years ago. Holiday, very nice it is, like Lake District on steroids, you know what I mean? It's just beautiful. He is currently the weekend editor for io9 and has written for such places as Barnes & Noble, Clark's World Magazine, Kirkus Reviews, Lightspeed Magazine, Tor.com and others. He is the co-editor of War Stories, New Military Science Fiction. He is a 2014 graduate of the Launchpad Astronomy Workshop. And I'll tell you what, I, I noticed Andrew's name and I thought, I'm sure I kind of recognise. And it was, Andrew, like I said, works at IO9 and he did a review of, I think it was a long distance to a short, angry planet by, and I'm, God, I should have me kind of, I'm, I'm listening to it now, but I'm going to get, it's actually, she's called Becky, I'm going to get Becky on hopefully tomorrow and do like an interview with her, because that's a, I've seen that little review Andrew did, and it was a great book, and the, the narration is fantastic as well, so look out for that. Hey now, mind you, big guns in narration terms, you know what I mean, Michael Narrowmore, Michael actually dropped us a, an email, you know, a, 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 a month ago, and just want the kind of big hit as there in Audible. Do you know what I mean? Just got so he's just done all sorts to be quite honest. You know what I mean in kind of narration terms. And what a voice, mind you! Michael Narrowmore has worked in the audio book industry since two thousand and one. When fresh out of college, he was hired as a recording engineer for publisher Brilliance Audio, now Brilliance Publishing, a subsidiary of Amazon.com. And I didn't knew that, mind you. Do you know what I mean? Over time. He's transitioned to director, all the while absorbing technique and nuances from the best actors in the business. To date, Michael has narrated well over 100 titles under his own and assumed names. Authors range from best-selling Nora Roberts, Lisa Garner, Edward Klein, Clive Barker to sci-fi rising stars Wesley Chu, Ramiz Nam and Mark A. Cooper. And I'm actually going to get, I've got it, to be quite honest, all lined up there, the Ramiz Nam, the second one. So, and that's where Michael kind of lends his talents. 
Michael is also an active writer, musician and recording artist, having scored the soundtrack to an independent short film, produced and engineered critically acclaimed rock records, and written, performed and recorded several silly little lo-fi rock songs of his own. He currently resides in the wild and scenic Columbia River Gorge outside Portland, Oregon with his wife, two small boys and their beloved Golden Retriever. Michael, it is... Listen... (laughs) We'll hound you to get more work off you, sir. Thank you so much for this. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Fragmented. Narrated by Michael Narrowmore. Every morning I wake up with the words that were drilled into my head in basic. Your armor is your protection, your unit is your home. They run through my mind as I stand in formation with my platoon at a base whose name I can't remember. We're too tired from the war to care about straight lines. The armored figures surrounding me are recognizable, despite the identical shapes. People I've stood with through training and deployment to the bottom of this godforsaken gravity well. We had all wondered if we would live to see this day, our decommissioning at the end. Platoon, hut! We snapped to attention reflexively at our captain's order, producing an impressive clap of metal against concrete prefab that echoes against the walls of the building. One last step before we can go home. I feel my palms begin to sweat, despite my cool metal skin covering me. The blast from an enemy grenade ripped into the wall above me. I ducked, shielding my face as the explosion blew out the concrete and metal supports, Debris rained down into the makeshift hole that my platoon and I had used for our foxhole, and I heard Sardarsky swearing as a jagged chunk of concrete the size of my head glanced off the back of his shoulders. You good? I shouted to Sardarsky as I shook off pebbles clanking off my armored skin. For a brief second, I was worried that the debris would scratch the flawless finish to my newly issued kit. But that was cut short as more gunshots cracked from across the street, spraying us in a new layer of powdered masonry. I ducked down again. Sardarsky flashed me a thumbs up as the dusty shower ended. I smiled as I raised my head over the edge of our foxhole. My suit's AI-assisted vision helped me scan the windows of the tall buildings on either side of us with each brief glimpse— looking for the telltale blink of light or flash in color from the masonry to a soldier's uniform. I watched the gaps from behind the sights of my gun, eyes darting from window to window. Gunfire pockmarked the wall as an unseen soldier joined the fight, and we ducked, reflexively. Sadarsky! I shouted. Cover the street! The soldier signaled back an acknowledgement as he and three other soldiers of his fire team peeled off from our line and moved across the street. I gestured to my own team of three, and we crept carefully down the sidewalk on the other side, taking cover in the rubble. I caught a glint off the wrong end of a telescopic gun sight and instinctively froze as my suit's heads-up display flared a warning. The flash of a shot signaled a round coming down at my head. Time slowed to a crawl, my armor constricted around the back of my neck to save my spinal column from the sudden compression, and I heard a metallic clank and felt a pressure against my skull as it flexed slightly to take the strike and dissipate the energy to the underlying gel layer. I dropped down onto a knee with the impact. I regained my footing and brought my gun back up, sighting in the enemy soldier looking down at me. He looked surprised as I dropped him with a shot of my own.
I sat frozen for a moment as the gunshots echoed away, and the only thing that I could hear was my breathing in the helmet. I'm alive, I whispered to myself. My heart leapt in my chest as I processed that it was true. I touched my metal-clad fingers to my head where the bullet had impacted, feeling a small groove. I worked the words around in my mouth. I was still alive, and I felt invincible. I looked to check Sardarsky and found that a heavy caliber round had reduced him and his armor to fragments. My hands started to shake that night. I shiver at the first glimpse of the sterile room as I make my way into the armor-slash-logistics compound, marveling at how small the specialist is as I walk up to him. He looks bored as I step up to his station, a semicircular array of tables, lights, and containers. Tools hang from the ceiling on their cords, and the bright white lights overhead lend a mechanical look to the room. I don't like it and I feel my skin crawl as I walk forward. Step into the center of the station, he orders me, indifferently. I'm suddenly angry at him, knowing that I could do any number of things that would irreparably harm the man in less than a second. The impulse scares me as it races across my mind, and I hang my arms at my sides. I wonder for a second if I thought like this before the war. I can't remember. I comply with his order. The tech moves behind me, and I hear a buzzing and sudden release of pressure as he begins to dismantle me. He works quickly, and in an astonishing amount of time, he's freed the individual components that form the helmet around my head. The dome is the first to go, and cool air leaks in around my face as the seals are broken. I look down at the workbench and catch sight of the shallow dent on the top right front piece sitting in front of me a small reminder of where I should have fallen and never come back up. We were exhausted after the end of the rainy season campaign. The jungle grabbed at us from every direction as we marched single file through the dense underbrush toward our transport out of the region. We were fifty days away from our last base, our last refit, and our last decent meal. The campaign scars were carved heavily on our surfaces, and as we walked, I realized that I didn't hear my armor anymore and didn't have to think about where the rest of my platoon mates walked around me. We were finally headed back to base, away from the short nights and the intense action that defined the front, relieved for the break. We were no longer the green soldiers we were when we landed planetside two years ago, eager for action and a taste of battle. Now, we just wanted to go home. I felt a hand on my shoulder. Sir? Garnon's voice buzzed in my headset as I turned to look at him, a scarred and pitted figure. He had a chip taken out of the lip over his visor, a cluster of scratches where he had been shot at close range with a flechette gun. Looking in the reflection of his helmet's face, I realized that I couldn't remember what his real face looked like. Thank you, he told me, breaking my train of thought as I stared at the reflection. You've saved us, me, so many times over the last month. I don't know what I could have done without you. I smiled, knowing that he'd be unable to see it, and placed my hand on his shoulder. 
You've done the same for me. I... I faltered. He flashed me a familiar thumbs up and I could picture his face. He trotted off to rejoin his place in the line. Suddenly he was gone. I blinked and found myself lying face up next to a tree, unable to move. The explosion ringing in my ears. I coughed, my lungs unable to expand fully in my protectively constricted armored skin. Unlock! Damn it, let me move! I shouted at my suit before I felt it relax around my limbs, allowing me to sit up. I looked around for my rifle before I found that my suit had clamped down on it, keeping it in my hand as I flew through the air away from the explosion. I brought the weapon up, ready to counter whatever was coming at us. Nothing appeared out of the underbrush. The forest was silent. Pain radiated from my ribs as I moved, and I saw that a piece of metal protruded out at an odd angle. I gripped it in my hand and pulled it out. I gasped at the shock of pain that radiated away from the puncture and could feel the heat of the air leak in, a damp alien warmth. I stood, trying to get my bearings as my head spun. The trees around me were shattered from the shrapnel. I coughed again, and as I doubled over, I caught a glimpse of armor through the trees. Garnon was lying several meters away, partially embedded in the roots of a tree. I ran over to him, ignoring the warnings that the AI displayed in my HUD and the pain in my ribs. I skidded to a stop at his side, and my insides froze. The explosion had shattered his suit. The lower part of his chest and torso had fragmented, with plates and pieces torn away from the blast. His right leg was missing, and there wasn't much left of his left one. I pulled him gently out of the roots and cradled his body in my arms. Specialist, come on, we've got to get cover, I told him. Garnon, let's go! He was heavy in my arms, and I realized that he was never going to walk away again. His eyes remained locked forward, staring deadly into the forest canopy. I hadn't slept well after that. The tech runs down the list of parts as he pulls them away from me. I look over and see that they're neatly packed away in preformed cases. I wonder if they're the same cases that came to me when we first arrived at this planet, green troopers fresh from training. My armor seemed so much larger then, clean, perfect. Now, sitting in the case, it was scarred and battered. Another piece comes away and I feel my breath catch in my throat. You're missing a piece here. Serial number should be... He consults a holographic manual that he calls up from somewhere on the desk. ICA 43298. He holds his hands apart to indicate its size. Small piece, hand plate? I shake my head. He sighs and touches the hollow. The missing piece turns red as his fingertips pass through it. Logistics will dock you for the part. I don't care. Peters bought it when we were sent to an enemy spacecraft that crashed behind our lines. We picked our way over rocks and steep ravines as an overhead drone guided us along, guns slung over our backs. 
It was an orbiter, and had just blown a major hole in our lines from the edge of the atmosphere before someone tagged it with a surface-to-air missile. It was a million in one shot, forcing it out of its perch above us. We were told to check for survivors. We growled. Nothing could have survived, and if they did, we didn't want to get killed on a recovery mission. We set off regardless. Orders were orders. Peters went first, rifle raised up to cover our front as she took point. Scattered fires fueled by the ship's propellant raged around us. The crew was dead, incinerated in the blast. We checked over the ship and set charges to complete the ship's destruction before retreating to a safe distance. The ship blossomed into a brilliant fireball. We cheered at the explosion and got up to leave. Peters turned to look back at the crater and promptly fell over. We later found that a fragment of the explosion had arched up and pierced her suit. I had nightmares every time I closed my eyes. The tech tosses a large piece from my chest assembly onto the workstation from where he stands. It lands with a loud clang and I jump involuntarily. He either doesn't notice or ignores the movement as he moves on to the next piece. Shit, he swears from behind me. I want to leave this tiny room with its bright lights. I feel him tug at another piece, prying away at something out of sight. Hey, go easy, I finally tell him. He shrugs. The war was over. We could hardly believe the news as we gathered around the briefing screen in our outpost. The planetary government had issued an ultimatum to their fighters, lay down all arms and cooperate with our forces. After a long five years of continual fighting, it was finally over. I knew that Sardarsky, Garnon, and Peters were gone, long packed up into a box. But I glance over to where they would have been sitting and wish that I could celebrate with them. Per the surrender terms, we're going to be pulling most of our units off the line. Armored infantry is going to be brought out first, followed by other units as we draw down over the next couple of months, our new captain told us once we'd all gathered around. Report to armor control for decontamination and processing. From that point... I tuned out the captain's voice as she outlined the rest of the timeline for our departure still trying to process the news. The war that had consumed us, that had killed everyone around me, that had left us alone and surrounded by ghosts, was over with a simple announcement. I wasn't sure what I'd been expecting. I am dressed in the clothing that had been given to me after the technician took the rest of my suit away from me. It was vacuum-packed in a tight plastic wrapper to save space on the transport ship, and it smelled sterile, reeking of the manufacturer's chemicals from back home, light years away. The clothes feel baggy on my frame, and as I walk, I feel as though I'm pulling a sail through the wind. I feel naked without my armor shell. I feel alone. The technician retracts his tools without a word, and I step out from the middle of the workstation. The fragments of my armor are scattered around the flat surface, 
their scarred and battered finishes contrasting with the sterile room. The sergeant ignores me, beginning to clean up the pieces by placing them into ready-made bins. I stop and watch for a moment as my armor vanishes into the cases, piece by piece. He points me back out to the parade square where I had stood alone in formation earlier, surrounded by the ghosts of my fallen comrades. I think back to the mantra that got me through the fighting. Everything has been stripped away, my skin, my friends, and my home. I feel vulnerable, and I freeze as I approach the door. I begin to fragment, and my hand brushes the armored hand plate that I palmed. I take a breath and walk out the door. There you go. Big, big thank you to Andrew Liptak. Like I say, go over there and, and check out his blog on io9. He, he gives some nice pointers away to different people to kind of go and read. And Michael, what can I say? Massive thank you to coming on, you know, sharing your talents and just doing a stupendous narration. Thank you so much. So that is today's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. You know, I hope you will come back for some more. Let me just say as well, the, the new and oomphed up newsletter is now up and running myself and craig young young craig napier you see young young craig he's getting on there now he's not he's not as old as the old fella here but he's you know he's he's, he's getting on there we have cobbled together this and it's actually it's lovely it's getting you know it's getting all kind of nice uh feedback which is the, the main thing do you know what i mean it's just lovely to get the kind of feedback so i'll just give you a little heads up you know how it's kind of laid out we've got Normally there'll be like a paragraph from me, like saying hello. This, this, and every couple of weeks we're going to do it. Then we've got Craig's got like a you know when he's like ten years ago, fifteen years ago, fifty years ago, and a hundred year ago. We've got like a little section in there. Then we've got the three shows, you know, Starships over Tales of Terrify and Farfetch Fables, and we're just like over the, the last two weeks we've got their shows linked to that. Then we do actually, you know, a recommended book and an author to watch as well so we've, we've got that kind of section in and then you know there is that we've got like a bit of community you know going on and we're asking you to kind of write a 400 word story and it'll get narrated on the show and within an hour of someone you know of, of this kind of present you know send we've got a story back and it's brilliant and we'll get that narrated and played on the show do you know what i mean and there's also readers or letters you can write in there and send letters away and for the next time as well, I'm going to do, or we're going to do a, you know, a bit like um, what you're reading, and it's pick an author and ask them, just ask them what they're reading at the minute. That's going to be a little section in there. And I was like, so next time is Ted Kuzmatka. You know, I've just asked Ted what you're reading, Ted, and he's, you know, he's come back with a couple of things there. So that'll be in there as well. And then we've got right at the bottom, we've got the kind of freebies. When I'm re kind of launching the engine room, if you remember, there was an engine room in. There was an engine room show, like section of the podcast, years ago, because I remember Diane and Fred were in that, if, I, if it rings rightly. And there was an engine room in the books as well. So we've got an engine room. In, yes, you always kind of, you know, <laughs> recobble it, you know what I mean? I like to reuse, you know what I mean? Recycle. We've got an engine room in there, and 
this is where I'll be banging in all kind of free goodies and stuff like that. And I'm going to put in eventually over the kind of the course of the time, the whole, you know, Starships over originals that I put in the first two. So Alfred Bester and John Brummer. And if you join up, you know, like say next week, then the way we've kind of done the template of this newsletter is you'll be able to just go back, you know, you'll not miss the kind of, because like I said, I think it's about 102 of these original shows. And there's other things I'll, I'll be popping in there as well. So every time you just subscribe, you know, if you'd subscribe two months later, you'll be able to get, you know, the kind of whole history, that whole history will be in there as well of the original. So you'll not miss any of them shows if you, if you kind of, if you listen to this two months later and think, I would like them originals, you know what I mean? I can hardly listen to them, to be quite honest. I might play one, just a, a random one next week on the show, stick one in at the end of the show. But anyway, come and sign up. Come up to any of the, the websites. There's a little sign-up box there. You straight away, you get taken, and you in, there's like, well, we've got like an automatic kind of, and not automatic, like rollout. There's about five emails where you get straight away Starships Over Stories, Volume 1, and you get Amy... And Ted Chang and Connie Willis on the, I think it's the third email was sent out. You get the, the time travel lecture, video lecture, what they did as well. And then, you know, when we'll, we'll let these go, you'll get these ones as well. So, and it's like you say, it's just a, a bit more, just a kind of science fiction. Do you know what I mean? It's just like another bow in Starship Sovas, District Wonders, Arsenal. or But it's just to get, you know, just a... And, you know, and submerge yourself in science fiction and genre, you know, and just enjoy it for what it is. Because it certainly, you know, helped me out and, you know, it certainly helps, you know, a lot of people out. And it's nice just to kind of have a bit more in your day. So do subscribe to the newsletter. So that is Starship Sofa. Like I say, I hope you've enjoyed it. Until next week, I'd just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.